This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Bingeworthy, a podcast about all things television, streaming, what we watch, and how we watch it. Hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo, and editor-in-chief of The Playlist, Rodrigo Perez, Bingeworthy helps you, the listener, keep track of it all, know what's what, and which of these many dozens of shows being released each week and month are worth tuning into. Today, we're going to discuss the new sequel series to the 70s sci-fi cult classic, which also shares its name. Yes, we are talking about The Man Who Fell to Earth, which stars Chiwetel Ejiofor as the new alien character who arrives on Earth at a turning point in human evolution and must confront his own past, as well as Thomas Newton's, to determine humanity's future. For those out of the loop and those who don't remember the original film or book, uh, Thomas Newton was the original alien who fell to Earth in the film, played by David Bowie, and is now uh, played by Bill Nighy in the series. So quite a great actor in, in his own right. The show also stars Naomi Harris, Rob Delaney, Jimmy Simpson. Uh, it premieres on Showtime on Sunday, April 24th. After Rodrigo and I discussed the show, creators and showrunners Alex Kurtman and Jenny Lamette stopped by to talk about bringing the story to our screens, the amazing performances uh, by Chewy Tell, Ejiofor, and Naomi Harris, and so many more people, and even their experience on the infamous Tom Cruise mummy film. Uh, it was actually a really, really enjoyable conversation, and I look forward to sharing it with everybody. But uh, Rodrigo, you've yet to see any of the episodes that we... Uh, were sent, which again, I don't blame you. We have so much being thrown at us right now, but I did watch the first, I believe it's four that they sent us. And uh, yeah, so feel free to take the question wheel and, and fire away. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, and in some ways I am still very well uh, versed in, in talking about this because I'm a huge fan of the original movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, the 1976 movie by Nicholas Rogue is fantastic. I mean, I fucking love that movie. That's a classic. And Nicholas Rogue is an incredible filmmaker. He is a very, God, I mean, if, you, if people don't know the works of Nicholas Rogue, they, they have to literally know his entire oeuvre. He's incredible. He, he, he's influenced a lot of people because, and like like a lot of art house filmmakers, because his stuff is very art house and very kind of jagged and, you know. Very 70s. Very, very 70s. Yes. And, and, and like anybody who has ever watched a movie that has had a lot of like surreal kind of jagged editing that was kind of one of the things that, that rogue did he was very much like kind of like always trying to take the form and break it as best he could without breaking it or, or take it to the edge of breaking things you know mm -hmm. and i loved his filmmaking and i love that movie and you know david bowie candy clark rip torn buck henry it's such a, a memorable incredible film and so when i heard that they were doing the series of it i was like oh wow really and then so it's alex kurtzman who you know, Alex has done a lot of different stuff, but I sort of know him as like, 
he's a, a Star Trek guy. He that's yeah. kind of kind of what he does these days. He's Star Trek. He's also done Transformers and he's done the amazing Spider-Man 2 and he's written so much Star Trek and oversees a lot of Star Trek on Paramount Plus. You yeah, know, Fringe and Alias and right. all that but stuff. But th- that's the thing other, you know, you know, and some of the stuff that that he's been part of in the, in the big budget world I'm not, you know, a very big fan of and neither is the Mummy, but you know, if you look at his career, he's also a very diverse filmmaker and he's obviously got interests in like blockbuster stuff, but also more like human stuff as well, which is probably where this is coming from. Um, and it's got a great cast. You know, Chiwetel is amazing. Naomi Harris, um, Bill Nye, which is an interesting because they only revealed, like for a long time, I thought, oh, so Chiwetel is, is the David Bowie character. No, it's a sequel. Late, yeah, yeah. And then very late in the game, they didn't kind of reveal any of that. Like very late in the game, right before it premiered at South By, they were like, oh, by the way, it's a sequel and Bill Nye is playing the David Bowie character. And it had been long, long shot by this point. And I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Like, I thought you were just, you know, just doing something different with it and and, and starting over, but it's actually a sequel. So uh, into that end, it's, I am assuming, it's probably not spoilers, but like uh, Chiwetel and uh, Naomi Harris are new aliens who arrived to the same planet of earth that that uh bill nye has been on for years chewy tell is the the new alien called faraday i believe it is naomi's character is a human character that he hunts down and kind of enlists the help of um oh wow it's a very very different kind of approach to the overall kind of concepts and you know story that the 70s film started but it's mm-hmm. a super super different thing like i rewatched the movie before mm-hmm. i watched the show yeah so there right, definitely yeah. is connective tissue for diehard fans but right. they pull you along in such a way that you really don't need to know anything and i will confess even having heard your adoration for the film i did not love it <laughs> right. it's it's uh it's not the easiest film to love and nicholas rogue's films aren't the easiest films to love but they're yeah, more like it, in how they're in the kind of uh, the vein of like very arty like a24 films would be the comparison but I, i'm sure even by today's standards yeah like, but you know, I haven't, yeah I haven't it, it meanders time, like, a lot and it borders on pornographic like <laughs> the amount of, of tilts and ass and dicks stuff. in that yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of shocking in the way that it's kind of portrayed right oh and my god there's I, so I, much and some of like the sort of hysterical breakdowns in the editing of like sound, it almost feels like the film is like having a freak out in a minute it's like yes it's like shot after shot after shot after after this and it's like is, is the editor having an epileptic fit what is going on like <laughs> but it's intentional it's like yes. just what rogue always did he kind of was like i mean again he was sort of known for his sort of surreal jagged editing and and uh you know influenced a lot of filmmakers like that who probably kind of toned it down since but like you know if you've mm-hmm. ever seen something like uh I know someone who's talked about him a lot is is uh, Steven Soderbergh, and specifically in the Limey, you know, and, the, and if you remember that the editing patterns of the Limey, it's kind of it's certainly non traditional, right? It's 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 cuts all over the place, and some of the cuts are pretty jagged, and it's jarring a little bit intentionally. And you know, I think a lot of people uh, took that kind of influence from from Rogue. But yeah, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. that kind of element is not part of the show. <laughs> no, it takes a lot of the concepts. Uh, and I will say Bowie is excellent in the movie and a lot of those concepts are are really great. So I can't knock the film completely. Um, but it's just, I mean, compared to the show, it's a very different animal. So this uh, one, yeah, the I, show I, is very sleek. It's very modern and streamlined. It does kind of do a little bit with time where it jumps forward a bit, but it's pretty linear and, and obvious where the uh, where the cuts are and, you know, what time it is. So you're not confused by anything at all. Um, and there's no... Uh, menagerie of sex scenes and, and weird <laughs> right nudity right. throughout like freak freaky sex scenes and almost really 
unusual, yes. you know, amounts of Rip Torn's penis is not, yeah, that's not here. Yeah, it's like an uncomfortable <laughs> kind of movie. And I, I assumed uh, some of that stuff's not going to be here in there. So how much is like Bill Nye in it? And and how much does he, is he act as like the kind of like guiding pivot to the next character or, or you know, a lot of these things, you know, it almost seemed in, in that regard, it almost sounds like a legacy sequel in that way, right? Like you take the right. main character from a, a classic thing. I mean, this is classic in a different sense, but, and then put him in a new context with new characters. That's kind yes. of like what a legacy sequel is these days, right? Yeah. Chewy tell, I mean, in the movie, Thomas Newton, I believe it is kind of loses his way. He gets too bogged down in humanity and forgets his mission more or less. And Chewitel comes as like the, the prodigy of, hit, of that species. And he's very unique and very on mission. Like he wants to take that mission and finish it and continue it through. That's interesting. Well, that's a great premise already right there because yeah, you know, that kind of makes sense. The, the, the David Bowie and Bill Nye's character has probably been on earth for a long time. And, and in that sense, probably acclimates to humanity, right? And maybe even wants to like identify with it. And then you got someone yeah. else who has not been there, doesn't understand it, and has a mission and, you know, doesn't have the baggage of, of what everything that uh, Thomas Jerome Newton, the Bowie character, has uh, uh, accumulated over the years, right? Yeah, and and don't expect, I don't want to spoil things, but don't expect too much Thomas Newton. He's very mysterious in his, uh, the way he hangs over the show, mm -hmm. and he does appear in multiple episodes, but it's just, it's Chewy Tell's story. It's Naomi Harris's story. Right. And there are a lot of characters that are connected to them and to their journey. And obviously in the, the film, there were like government agencies that were, you know, falling all over themselves and corporate interests. And that very much is present in the show. Um, so there's a lot of those kind of characters that are kind of seedy or flawed and are either trying to attach themselves to Chewy Tell or hunt him down in certain ways. It teases him as ultimately becoming this Steve Jobs type Chewy Tell's character very in the very beginning of the show and you're kind of like watching his journey to that so um the other interesting thing about this show is that uh the co-creator is jenny jenny lumet who is the daughter of sydney lumet the great sydney lumet filmmaker yeah and and she wrote rachel getting married um and but she's also kind of like she's and maybe that's why you know the the two of them sort of yeah, her and up, kurtzman but, are, are right yeah, but they're very arm. they're arm in arm they're they're and and they do the kind of same thing like she seems to be more from the world of like drama and 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 character dri driven kind of stuff um you know she did Rachel getting married and she also uh co-created the Clarice show um yep. you know uh the Silence of the Lambs show but it's sort of like it feels like to me and I, I I'm interested if you talked about this at all but both of them they both feel like they're from that world but they're but they're they seem like they're both kind of like the realistic pragmatic people that being like well, that's not going to pay the bills and that's not going to get on television or film so I can still bring that stuff to IP and to genre and stuff like that. Right. Like, yeah. and, 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 you know, that's kind of seems like what they, they, they're both from drama, but doing a lot of genre stuff, not unlike someone like Matt Reeves, who recently just said like, you know, the same thing, you know, I come from that world, but there's not much space for that world. So I can do the, the same kinds of things that I still love doing with humans and characters and emotion and just apply it into a bigger genre world. And so I wonder if like, that's kind of their thing. They definitely did talk about the concepts of humanity and, you know, from an outsider's perspective mm -hmm. and all these different things that really drew them to it. And obviously they adore, you know, the original story, right. but they definitely are conscious of the themes and the, the human elements that are running through this. And it is really impressive. Like technically it looks amazing. Chuitel and Naomi are on fire. Like I've said, they're outstanding. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I love Jimmy Simpson. Like you throw him in anything and he's kind of interesting to me. Right. So Jimmy he, Simpson, he plays good... Clark, Clark Peterson. I love Clark Peters from The Wire. Mm -hmm. He's terrific. Uh, Rob Delaney, the comedian who's also just been in a lot of different stuff and is, and is pretty, um, he, I mean, he's, I guess, first and foremost comedian, but he seems like he's also a very good dramatic actor as well. Rob Delaney? Um, yeah. Yeah, he's great. He's really good in the show. Yeah. So there's just seems like a, a lot of cool people on it and, and a, a good team involved. And uh, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. You guys also talked like, like some of the other stuff that he's done, like, like the mummy and Star Trek and things like that. Yeah. I wanted to touch on so much more because I only had 20 minutes with him. But right. I right. had like a list of things to hit and I only got to touch on right. the mummy. He, he's, he's touched, he's, he's had his fingers in so many pockets and a, a lot of big, big kind of IP stuff. Right. Yes. Yeah. He's been involved in, in a lot of big stuff like you touched on. I mean, Spider-Man 2, Amazing Spider-Man 2, he was one of the writers on that. Right. Uh, obviously, The Mummy was a formative experience for him. And he is very open and honest when it comes to that experience and how, what impact it had on him and seeing it truly as a failure. Like he understands how bad the movie is, but it still helped him learn how to make something like this you know, where he can be in more, more creative control where he doesn't have to give up, you know, the, right. the kind of control that he right. had to give right. up there. Right. I, I, the other thing I think that that's maybe, I don't know if you guys talked about this, but like sort of fascinating to me is like, how the hell does this guy have time to do this while also like seemingly <laughs> doing everything of like, when I think of Star Trek TV, it's all him. Like he, he's either writing it, directing it. He's definitely the executive. He's basically the godfather of Star Trek TV on Paramount yeah. Plus at the moment. Like he, Jenny Lamette too. She's on a, a lot of those shows. Yes, yeah, that's right. Because they 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 started that relationship back, I think, around the money. Yeah. Um, Sadly, if you are a Star Trek fan, I didn't touch very much on okay. the Star Trek. Well, I'm just curious in terms of like it, balancing, but yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, the, the topic here is the is the Manny Felder Earth, so that's that's fair enough. Yeah. No, it was a really excellent conversation, and we got to go to some deep places, and he got to touch on some. You know, like that, that mummy thing that I keep talking about is really interesting the way he kind of views it. And I even touch on fringe cause I was a big fringe fan. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, he, uh, Alex Kurtzman and, and Jenny Lumet are, are very talented and interesting people. And I guess we can just fall on over to our delightful little interview. Uh, again, the man who fell to earth premieres on Showtime on Sunday, April 24th. Here is my interview with showrunners, Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lumet. I really mean that this was a great talk. So let's get to it. Uh, Alex and Jenny, Mike D'Angelo from The Playlist, thank you so Mike. much for taking the time for me today. I really have enjoyed these first four episodes that we're, we've gotten to see. I have to say best background. <laughs> Absolutely best in background. I, I create these things when I'm bored on press junkets. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good one. Uh, so I guess let's just start from the beginning of the idea for the show. What made you want to create a sequel series? for a nearly 50-year-old like sci-fi cult classic? It's, I have a sort of perversely personal answer to that. Oh. To that question. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things, you know, we were thinking about it and sometimes you don't really know why you're doing a thing until a couple of years behind you, you know, a couple of years later. You, you, can I curse on this podcast? Absolutely. Okay, good. So I didn't, I, I, you sort of, you look back and you go, holy shit, that was me. Holy shit, what was I doing? Holy shit, what was I thinking? So uh, Sarah Timberman uh, brought us this property and I, and I said, yeah, yeah, without ha having any idea 
where the fuck it would take us, what we were going to write about, what it was going to look look like. And I didn't know why, but it, it came out of, it said it came out of me. And Alex, in our partnership, Alex is, is reasonable. And he was like, well, you sure? I was like, yeah. And I realized that thinking about it now, I had gone through an enormous amount of personal loss, loved ones. And it's not a sad heartbreak, but when you lose somebody, the world is a new place. It becomes a different planet, right? The terrain is completely different. And it was very, and it was hard to get my footing. And I think that I wanted to write my way through that. And I knew this material. I knew that Walter, I knew not Walter Tevis's book. I knew Nicholas Rogue's extraordinary movie. And of course, David Bowie's David Bowie. I knew it. And I knew that with this material, I could write my way through stuff that I needed to write my way through and also ask really, really cool questions. I'm not smart enough to answer questions, but I'm smart enough to ask questions like, how did we get here? Who took that left turn and what the fuck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) so for me, it was that. For me, it was that. I can't speak for Amazing. Yeah, I think that when when Sarah first brought the material to us, I was very reticent to step into the shadow of David Bowie and Nicholas Rogue and Walter Tevis because they're such titans in each in a different way. And everybody has very particular feelings about like, there are even people who haven't seen the movie, but feel like they have because it, it, mm-hmm. it kind of did this very interesting. Um, I don't know. It cemented it, it itself. I think in people's minds, particularly when it comes to the films of the seventies, it just felt like the room for failure was so high, you know? And if we didn't have something original to say, my God, why would we ever play Russian roulette like that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yet at the heart of Tevis's novel are these central questions about human beings and the choices that we make and the choices that we're making and what our future stands to become that are unfortunately still very relevant now. And that's because I think Tevis, who was an extraordinary, extraordinary author, did what all the great science fiction works do, which is use the story as allegory for the present. Even if you're writing about the future, you're really writing about the present. And that's certainly a lesson I learned from Roddenberry and on Trek. And so I think that my initial reservations gave way to, frankly, a need to answer these questions because we were looking around at the world and what it was becoming, and we were not understanding what we were seeing anymore. Things were not making sense to us anymore. And human behavior in many ways was not making sense to us anymore. So rather than say, let's write a thing where we have all the answers, because we would never pretend to have any answers. We were really just looking for ways to work through our understanding of these questions that we had. And and that's what the opportunity gave us. So in a way, it went from, you know, let's never do it to we need to do it. (laughs) It's funny that you guys keep mentioning these big questions, because one of the first things I wrote down as I was watching the episodes is lots of big questions and are we ultimately doomed as a human race without alien intervention <laughs> was the second thing I wrote. That's there. a really good question. I and mean, I'm going to, for real, if you think of people who, one of the questions that um, Alex, one of the things that Alex sort of brought to the table from jump, I said, yeah, let's uh, like, you know, like in this kind of weird bro kind of. <laughs> and Alex uh, one of the reasons we're partners is that he says really cool stuff sometimes. And he said, have you ever thought about it? If maybe like, um, if Steve Jobs were an alien, and I was like, oh, well, that makes perfect fucking sense now, doesn't it? Um, so, so it is. the second part of, your, part of your question is for all we know, 
we already got the alien intervention that we were supposed to get and it's up to us not to fuck it up from here. But I don't think we're doomed. I believe I'm very much team human. I believe in human beings. Uh, people start businesses, people get married, people have kids, people plant gardens. I mean, that's an investment in the future in the most small and beautiful way. I, I don't think we're going to screw it up. I think that we're going to pull, we're going to, this is an inflection point and I think we're going to come through and we're going to look back and go, that was a close one. And uh, we're going to do better next time. I think that. I agree. I agree. I think we, we, we did not want to set out to write a, a story about how we're all doomed to death without alien intervention. What we, <laughs> what we really wanted to do was, um, was <laughs> what we really wanted to do was, it was tell a story about what, what was obviously darkest in human beings, but also what's brightest in human beings. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of hope. And I think one of the main messages of the story is that when we really connect with each other and we really listen to each other, anything is possible. And right now it's ironic that all of, all of technology that has made us more connected than we have ever been is actually serving to, to distance us from each other more than ever. And that, that irony is something we live with day to day. So hopefully we put something out into the world that makes people aware of that, but not in an eat your vegetables or wagging our fingers at you kind of a way in a super entertaining way. I mean, you know, we're at this great moment in television where you can tell stories in all kinds of new and groundbreaking ways. But the one common denominator is that the shows people love the most, they get so invested in the characters. They just fall totally in love with the characters. And we fell in love with our characters right out of the gate. And not just our first two characters, every single character you see on screen. And the pandemic, we, I think we we're about four episodes in and the pandemic hit. And so it forced everything to stop. And we didn't have the freight drain of production barreling down on us. So we were able to really luxuriate and think about these characters. Everyone, everyone, even the smaller characters have an arc over the course of the season. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, you're always looking for the silver lining in, in, in the moment. And certainly in the pandemic where the questions that we were asking were louder than ever because, you know, we were just, we were dealing with so much horror every day. It, it gave us the opportunity to, to work through that to build the characters in a way that I'm not sure we would have had the time to, frankly, if we had had to just write against the, the deadline of production yeah, and set a precedent for, for us, I think, where we never want to do it any other way again. Without a um, pandemic. We never want to write without a pandemic. I can take the pandemic part. <laughs> we can put that aside and not do that part. But the, the time to really think something through is yeah. everything. A nice little writer's excursion at the very That's least. That's right. Everyone in this cast is performing at peak levels. I'm in particular, I just have this thing about Jimmy Simpson. I freaking love that guy. Amazing. Um, but Chewy Tell and Naomi, they are just outstanding in this show. So I'm wondering when they come on board, does the the character at all change at all? I mean, oh, yeah. Chewy Tell's performance as Faraday is, I mean, it's crazy. Did did it was that what you envisioned, or did he sure. add a whole dimension? Well, what you know, it's I just thought of a really, really dumb joke that I thought of when we were shooting at that mansion in the middle of uh, the London. That, that abandoned mansion, yeah. That abandoned mansion, a little, can I tell you my really stupid joke? Because you were saying how amazing, it's not going to translate it all. This is a terrible idea. <laughs> too late now. It's too late now. Okay. It's too late. <laughs> so um, we're in this, you know, rolling English field and you were just, you were just raging, raving about how extraordinary Naomi and Shuata are which they are. And at some point they were both out in the middle of this beautiful green lush meadow. And I thought they're outstanding in their fields. <laughs> I'm was, sorry. That was I'm terrible. Sorry. 
why did I not see it coming? I know. <laughs> it's mortifying, and I'm sorry it came out of my mouth. Oh my god. They are they're unbelievable. I mean, they're they're, you know, and and their process is extraordinary. Having directed them on a bunch of the episodes, you know, Chuatel is wildly meticulous. He and I are very similar in that we like to prep everything in advance, like to within an inch of its life. So we would talk pretty much seven days a week. And even when we were shooting six days a week, we would take two to three hours on a Sunday and we would go through the, the, the week ahead and we'd break down every scene and we'd talk about every micro nuance of the performance. But then on the day, we were both free to let all that stuff go and find something else if it came up. And I don't think that we would have been able to have that freedom had we not really understood exactly what we were going for. And Naomi is very much the opposite. You know, I, I always ask any actor I work with before we start, is there anything you do or don't like from a director? Like, just let me know now, because I don't want to walk into that trap. And Naomi said, I will do absolutely anything you ask. Please don't ask me to rehearse. And, you know, when, when someone of that caliber tells you that, you trust them because Naomi, you know, is, is Naomi. And the difference for her is that if you rehearse with her, it takes the spontaneity out of the moment, but it's not that she's not rehearsing. She's just doing it private. So she, she just doesn't want to ruin it for the camera. She doesn't she want to keep it stale. Yeah. yeah. And so these two actors have totally different methods, but they come at it from the same place. And my job was just to meet them in both of those places. And, but you know, same with Jimmy. Like- Jimmy and I did the same thing every weekend. You know, he, we worked, there's an incredible woman all of us worked with named Kim Gillingham. And um, we worked there every weekend. And, you know, I worked with her as a director. They worked with her as an actor. And then we'd all work together. And it's it's just breaking down the text over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And and really digging into not, you know, Jenny and I spent three years writing it. And I would discover in those sessions, oh, my God, I didn't realize that was there. Yeah. You know, and knowing that before you get on set is everything. Because then you know what you're going for. You know, Mike, it's interesting because since Naomi and Chiwetel come at their work from such from polar opposite places I think that chemistry um, exists on screen and I think that also for those characters as well it adds I mean we really like thank the drama gods when they responded they responded to our material and we kind of fell down and and wept well he wept (laughs) (laughs) also because I was tired but (laughs) Well, I mean, and then there's the film of it all, which I did rewatch before I watched the show, just because I was like, it's been too long. A long time, yeah. Film. So there's um, a lot of naked in that movie. People are naked. I like, did and not right. remember the amount of almost pornographic elements totally. in that, yeah. in that yeah. movie, but yeah. uh, it's a lot. But how much did you want to incorporate from the film? Because it's very different. Um, yeah, but at the I same mean, time, the ideas are still there. Well, um, Alex should speak to most of this as the director, but we knew that chasing or imitating was an was the biggest mistake we could make because that was a singular talents making a singular movie at a specific moment in time. But Alex, please. Yeah, I mean, you know, Nicholas Rogue is, I love his films. And the first Nicholas Rogue film I ever saw was in high school and it was Bad Timing. It's called Bad Timing, Essential Obsession. And it was Art Garfunkel and Teresa Russell. And I was totally blown away by the kind of, the, he really shuffled the deck in terms of time, jump around in time. And it was about this breakup of this relationship and it would move around in time. And it was very intense. And the camera work was very visceral. It's right in there with the characters. The thing about the, the film is that it's both linear and nonlinear, which is a very weird thing to do. 
Um, it almost follows a stream of consciousness. But the thing that I took from it more than anything, other than, wow, that's a lot of nudity, is that it <laughs> captures an extraordinary sense of loneliness and isolation in the visuals. And I think Anthony Richmond was the DP. But, you know, Bowie, you know, as this very small figure in these hugely wide anamorphic backgrounds, it got me, it got, it, it just conveyed a feeling. And so even though our, we attempted to do something entirely different, because the last thing I wanted to do was imitate Nicholas Rogue. Mm -hmm. What I did want to do was capture the spirit of that feeling that I felt when I saw the film, which is this incredible isolation. And these, and it wasn't just for Chiwetel, it was also for Naomi's character, Justin, that they're both very, very isolated when you meet them in these big, sprawling backdrops. And it, yeah. it just it creates a sense of to be that wide and distant from a character while also being right in there. We had the, we had the camera sometimes one inch from their faces. You know, and I love creating that kind of in intimacy, but you can create intimacy from distance too. So figuring out the balancing act between both of those in the approach was everything. You know what I just realized that we did? It's one of those things, like you just don't, you don't know what you, and you look back and you say, holy cow. And it's, I don't know if we did it, but Nicholas Rogue certainly did it. And yeah, we did it in our way. When, when we met Candy Clark in the movie, we met her when she was in her hotel maid's uniform. A hotel maid's uniform is designed to designate you as a hotel maid, but erase you as a human. Um, so you, she is rendered invisible, but invisible. Naomi, when we meet her, is completely designated as a, as a caretaker and a cleaner up, and then she is invisible after that. And so in terms of isolation, one of many, one nameless of many, that's a moment that I realize and I don't know if it was conscious or unconscious for us. I'm sure Nicholas Rogue thought about it, but that just struck me as a moment that hadn't, and it hadn't struck me before until you asked that question. So thank you, Mike. Uh, do you guys have a roadmap for this one? Because streamers these days, they're like maximum three seasons unless it's a hit. So do you, do they like tell you like, Hey, plan out, you know, more than one or, or what kind of roadmap do you have laid out for you? The, the map um, builds itself as you, as you go forward. Um, we, we had a sense of where we wanted to go broadly when we did the first season, where we, rather, I should say, when we started the first season, by the time we ended the writing of the first season, not only did we have a very clear sense of what the season was about, but we answer many questions that are asked, but then we also raise a bunch of new questions at the end of the season. And so that I think is the beginning of the roadmap. If there were to be a season two for what we will do next. Yes, we do have a pretty clear and strong sense of what we would want to do in a season two. I'd be absolutely lying to you if I told you I knew had any clue what we would do in season three, because I don't believe that quality material can be built that way, especially material like this. I think mm -hmm. you, I think you really have to marinate in it because we, everything we tried to do on the show was to break convention in some way or, or create a, um, just when you thought you, you would know where it was going, it would take a left turn into something else. And that's, that's not something you can, at least that's not something that I think I, or I should say we, could see without really kind of chipping away with a flashlight in the dark and finding it as we were going, you know? No, I mean, I think we did an enormous amount of, um, this always sounds wacky, but we did, we listened to these characters really hard and they did, I'm not, we're writers, there's craft, there's work, you get up, you do your work, um, but they surprised us. And they led us in places. So there's no pos there's no way to know in season three uh, what Naomi is. I don't know what she's doing. I don't know what she's doing yet. She's 
got a whole year to grow through if we're listening to her and doing our jobs right. Yeah. I will also tell you, my God, Mike, we made five movies in half the time that it would take to make one full movie. <laughs> and we did it in a pandemic and it was absolutely exhilarating and absolutely exhausting. So the idea of moving forward at this point is inconceivable to me, especially because <laughs> we're still in post on, on the back half of the season. Um, so ask me again in you know eight months if, if we end up with a second season. Okay, so just uh, one more question. I'm going to do a quick left turn. And just because this is a subject that's endlessly fascinating to me and you both worked in the universal monsterverse kind of thing, particularly with the mummy and some of the other projects they had in the works. Now that people are are kind of talking about the experience and, you know, to create that universe and the amount of cooks in the kitchen with those projects, what's your perspective five years on? I'm curious how that experience kind of shaped you to where you are now and even what the final cut was compared to what you originally thought going in. That experience, and um, this is, of course, a bigger question for Alex, um, I, I found it so valuable. I'd never written a very, very, very big movie. And I think that it's important to know how to do all the things. So uh, I learned how to do a thing. And I am forever grateful for that experience. It was movie making on an enormous scale. I, 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 I don't think that I could be here now without that experience. I tend to subscribe to the point of view that you learn nothing from your successes and you learn everything from your failures. And that was probably the biggest failure of my life, both personally and professionally. Um, There's about a million things I regret about it, but it also gave me so many gifts that are inexpressibly beautiful. I didn't become a director until I made that movie. And it wasn't because it was well-directed. It was because it wasn't. And I would not have understood many of the things that I now understand about what it means to be a director had I not gone through that experience. And as brutal as it was in many ways and as many cooks in the kitchen as there were, I am very grateful for the opportunity to have to have been given the opportunity to make those mistakes because it built me, it rebuilt me into a tougher person and it also rebuilt me into a clearer filmmaker. And that has been a real gift. And I feel that I feel those gifts all the time because I'm very clear now when I have a feeling that isn't that doesn't feel right, I am not quiet about it anymore. <laughs> I, I will literally not proceed when I feel that feeling. It's not worth it to me. And you can't get to that place of gratitude until you've had that kind of experience. And look, if you look at history and you look at people who've made amazing things, every single one of them will tell you the same story, which is that it came after a failure. So I look back on it now with gratitude. It took me a while to get there, but my life is better for it. Wow. That was an amazing answer. Just selfishly, they're giving me the wrap. I do want to give a quick shout out to Fringe because I love Fringe and I know you're oh, thanks. Fringe. Uh, do you think that could ever come back at some point? I mean, yeah, of course it could because you could tell those, that, those kinds of stories endlessly and those characters were so much fun to write and create. I loved that show and I love how many people love that show and how many people just like you now have said, man, I love that show. Why, you know, it could have gone on forever. Um, <laughs> The cast was fantastic. It was re- it was just a fun experience. So I'd love to see it come back at some point. All right. Well, thank you guys for giving me your time again. I really enjoyed what I've seen of The Man Who Fell to Earth, which premieres on Showtime on Sunday, April 24th. Alex, Jenny, thank you very much. 